Our guest tonight has been here a few times before, a distinguished American intellectual who at the same time has had a rather colorful adventure in real life beyond the walls of the university, a political adventure to say the least. Ronald Radosh, whose newest book is Commies, A Journey Through the Old Left, the New Left, and the Leftover Left. I think it would be fair to say that among your many published books, the one that's best known is the one you did together with uh, Joyce Milton, titled The Rosenberg File. Correct, isn't that? correct. Uh, which established, I think, not merely to your satisfaction, but to the satisfaction of your readers, that the Rosenbergs, and surely Julius Rosenberg, right. really was utterly guilty of that for which Absolutely. he was accused. Absolutely, and of course, since that book came out in 1983, and since the fall of the Soviet Union, with all the new material coming out uh, from former Soviet <laughs> archives, uh, the revelations of the KGB agent who recruited and ran Julius in the United States. Everything we had said in that book has been confirmed, and yet we really had the story from the sources we were able to use. We had it completely right. The other material, really just the Venona files, just verified. And uh, on all the essential points, we had the story really completely right. Yet even to this day, uh, and with some complicity from academic institutions, uh, there are still uh, a lot of belief, and it's sort of organized into uh, special social groupings, belief in the intrinsic innocence of the Rosenbergs. Where have they just established a center to... Well, the Center for Alger Hiss. Al the exactly. Alger Hiss people, uh, it's the same thing with Alger Hiss at New York oh, University. Oh, it's Alger Hiss rather than the New York uh, University the Rosenberg and the Tammond sure. Library. Ironically, right. the Tammond Institute was an old anti-communist socialist yeah. uh, institute uh, from the 40s, 30s, and 40s that published the old New Leader magazine, and they were fiercely on the side of the anti-communist liberals. I'm blending my uh, communist spies, Alger Hiss and I. Right. Well, it's the same Julius point Rosenberg. for both. Well, they, they weren't colleagues. And, they uh, were different out, territory. I point out in, in this book, in Commies, where I just have a whole chapter in the Rosenberg case and the reaction to it and what happened. Uh, it's one of the things that, in fact, made me rethink a lot of things, the whole reaction to my uh, saying that Julius Rosenberg was a Soviet spy. Because when I wrote that book, I still consider, considered myself a man of the left. And I eventually came to ditch that leftism and realize for a lot of reasons, but that's one of the things that the whole world outlook I had was itself faulty. It wasn't just the Rosenberg case. It wasn't accidental, in other words, that all the people on the left, even the best ones on the left, the so-called democratic socialists, who were always anti-communists, said, we don't want to get involved in this. Sure, the Rosenbergs are guilty, but can't you leave it that they're mm -hmm. innocent? Or people would tell me, You've proved your case, but you got to say they're innocent. doesn't matter what the truth is. And I just couldn't buy that. You notice how you still have, if only in terms of linguistic reverberations, a few traces of your leftist roots. You actually uttered the phrase uh, three sentences back, it isn't accidental. Oh. That. <laughs> and that's a great Marxist sort right, of, that's true. Every, uh, uh, trope. Somebody's it? always said uh, it's no accident. That. Right, true. Yeah. true. This book of yours, which is a memoir, and it's a political... Uh, treatise at the same time. Commies, A Journey Through the Old Left, The New Left, and The Leftover Left, just recently published by Encounter Books. This volume, I say, could almost be looked at as participatory ethnology. Uh, it describes a culture which existed in this country, in a section of this country, or but which most Americans didn't know that much about. If they had heard of it, they had only very distorted images of it and minimalistic images of it. But it's really the culture of um, the Communist Party and its many offshoots and the people who belong to it and cluster together, often secretly. 
Right. Well, that was that's a whole culture. What I grew up in that culture. You are a, an original red diaper baby, as correct. Called. I mean, I grew up in that culture. Uh, my parents were Jewish immigrants. They were actually my father. Neither of them were actually members of the Communist Party, but my father was a very close fellow traveler, very active in some of their major front groups. My mother was more of an anarchist and distrusted the Communists. But all their friends, the whole milieu of the people they were involved with, many of them, relatives, friends, were all communists. And this goes back to, say, the 1940s. The 1940s. 1940s. I, I was born in 1937. But that culture existed from the 30s on, sure. Right. I mean, the, the communist movement had its own institutions, its own catechisms, its own saints, its own. It was like a religion. And religious groups have Sunday school, they have church, they have church picnics. The Communist Party worked in the same way. They had their own institutions. I talk about the summer camps, their own educational institutions, all of which are meant to integrate every facet of your regular day-to-day -day life with the movement so that you couldn't even envision a life outside that movement. And their magic but secret touch was, if not everywhere, was in lots of places that people didn't suspect. It is the case that for quite a while, certainly through the 30s and the 40s, they controlled many American labor unions. Right. I mean, the communist people forget that, particularly in the 30s and the 40s, the Communist Party was far more influential and important than its membership, which never exceeded, uh, what, 100,000 or so. But they had scores of fellow travelers. Now, the communists, because what the communists did is get control of the leadership of certain organizations or movements they were involved in. And they controlled many of the key CIO unions. Uh, when the industrial union movement broke the AFL-CIO, the CIO broke off and the industrial unions formed their own federation. The communists were very important. And of course, for his own reasons, the head of the miners' union who had broken with the AFL, the late John L. Lewis, had hired communists because he knew they were the best organizers. He made the famous quip, who gets the bird dog, the hunter, or... But the point, the point being that uh, I'm hiring them, I'm going to use them. But at the same time, they used him and cemented themselves in key unions. You give wonderful descriptions of uh, the world in which you grew up, in New York, in Manhattan, the schools you went to, the Elizabeth Irving School. Elizabeth Irwin. Irwin School was not uh, an official organ or institution of the Communist Party, but it was decidedly uh, staffed by kids from very leftish families. Right. Uh, actually, let's backtrack a bit and start with the summer camps. Yeah. Because that comes first. The Woodland Camp was camp, it I went to Camp Woodland for children in right. upstate New York and Phoenician New York. There were three camps that were, two of them were really actually set up formally by the Communist mm -hmm. Party. One of uh, the most hard line was a camp called Wochika. And I, it sounds like a nice American Indian name. Camps always had Indian names. Mm -hmm. That Wochika meant workers' children's camp. Yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, their theater was the Paul Robeson Playhouse. And they even had the grounds of the camp festooned with Soviet flags with a hammer and sickle. I mean, that was the hardline communist camp. The other was. And you know, probably just down the road, or not just down the road, someplace else in New York State, was the camp of the, Na of the German American right. Bund, right. the Nazi camp. Right. Uh, all these institutions had camps. Yeah. Uh, and then there was the uh, Jewish. Uh, secular communist camp, Camp Kindlin, that was affiliated with the International mm -hmm. Workers' Order, the Communist Party's front group fraternal organization. And the camp I went to was a camp really associated with the Communist Party in the war years, the so-called popular front philosophy. Mm -hmm. It didn't emphasize the hardline mm -hmm. communism. It emphasized 
folk culture and folk music. I mean, this is a time when the great folklorist Alan You were a great folkie yourself. Yes, absolutely. You, you trained yeah. with Pete Seeger. No right, I took lessons from Pete Seeger. I met Pete Seeger at Camp Woodland, where he would regularly come, and I wanted mm -hmm. to be Pete Seeger. Then my goal was to be a folk singer. I took lessons from him. I could play play, play like him. Unfortunately, I was not a good musician. I couldn't sing. That's you played true. the banjo. Oh, yeah. I still, still do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> still trying to learn. Uh, but, uh, and... That music was part of the culture. When other kids were discovering rock and roll and Elvis, I was into Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and all these uh, uh, folk music that I had learned at Camp Woodland. And Camp Woodland went around. What they did is what Alan Lomax did when he discovered Muddy Waters and people like that, and mm -hmm. Led Belly and brought his tape recorder to the South. They brought old reel-to-reel -reel recorders and went through the Catskill Mountains taping the stories and the songs people then in their 80s and 90s who were the old generation of lumbermen and tanners from the Catskill Mountains. Now, you can say, what does this have to do with socialism or communism? Nothing, except they believed that in rescuing the stories of these authentic indigenous mm -hmm. American workers, they were building a new culture which would become a mainstay of the few socialist future. Well, so far it sounds fairly harmless. Uh, Although, I say, the first, my, the the first attempt to formally recruit me into the communist movement mm -hmm. was at Camp Woodland. They had an event called Youth Festival. Now, other camps had Olympics or Color Wars. They called theirs Youth Festival after the Communist World Youth Festival that Moscow was sponsoring uh, in that period. And everybody wanted to be either in a communist China or yeah. the Soviet Union and the teams. Now, look, we're talking about the 1930s. You're a kid at well, Camp Woodland. Well, this is the late 40s. Or rather, the late 40s. Yeah. Go back to the 30s, rather. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, I was a, a kid in the late 30s. You're a right. kid in the late 40s. In fact, by the way, I went to a camp uh, in the same area, I guess, uh, which was not a communist camp, but it had a very similar name. Was, uh, you went to, there was Kinderland, which was a communist camp. There was Kinderwelt which was the labor Zionist camp. Oh, and there was also Kinderring, which was the Workman's Circle camp. And there was Workman's Circle camp. It was actually camp. right across the lake from the communist camp, and they would have fights. They'd row out and uh, try and fight each other in the water. But apart from recruiting little Jewish kids from New York yeah. uh, in those camps, uh, go back to the 30s. Was there serious, as lots of liberals have long denied, was there serious communist penetration, not only of the labor unions, well, but, of the American, labor... but of the American government? Uh, absolutely. Now, what we see from the so-called Venona files that started being released in 1995, the decrypts of Soviet intelligence files that were finally released uh, in massive installments of the past since 1995 by the NSA and the CIA, they show conclusively that the top levels of the American government, even the OSS, the predecessor of the CIA, were heavily infiltrated by communists whose loyalty was to Moscow, not to the United States. And uh, this was very serious. Have some names uh, been uh, specified? Oh, sure. I mean, uh, one of the Venona documents, in fact, relates to Alger Hiss, and a lot of people, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. uh, like the scholar Sam Tannenhaus, say that, in fact, was the smoking gun in Venona, which established uh, uh, the fact that Hiss was a Soviet spy. Uh, and there, there are many others. I mean, I don't have uh, the Venona information at hand. There are a couple of really good books on Venona, particularly Harvey Clay and John. Hayes. It has been suggested that some of the brains trust around Roosevelt in the 30s were, in fact, uh, pretty close to and or 
possibly even secret members of the Communist Party. Is that a canard? Uh, no. There's, there's some, there were people high up in the administration. His, his name has now slipped my mind. Uh, not Harry Hopkins. Some people claim there's a whole debate. I, mm -hmm. I think um, some of those would say that evidence did not prove that Harry Hopkins was a Soviet spy. Some people think he was. I'm not convinced of that. But uh, other people in the uh, Duncan Lee uh, the late communist economist Victor Perlow, there was a whole ring of people with top jobs in the New Deal. Uh, Lachlan Curry was the name I was thinking mm -hmm. of. Liaison but these are sub-cabinet level well, jobs. Lachlan Curry was the liaison between the White House and the State Department uh -huh. under FDR and Harry Truman, and he was a, he was a Soviet spy. He was spy. a member yes. of Oh, he was a Soviet cell. spy. Yeah. These were former KGB agents reporting to the KGB. I mean, there was very serious, you know, it only takes a few. It doesn't make a mass movement. No. You have a few committed spies who are in government and are there to serve mm -hmm. the Soviet Union. That's a real threat to the country's national security. It is conceivable that at the same time we had a, may have had a well-placed spy or two in the Kremlin. Certainly, hopefully, except that in totalitarian society it was much harder to achieve that. Yeah. Later on, I think, as, as some of them became disillusioned, we probably picked up some. But that period, the Soviet penetration of this government probably was 10 to 1 greater than any penetration we had of theirs. Uh, a rapid pan forward to Madison, Wisconsin, okay. just up the road from here. You arrive uh, as a freshman. Right. And, uh, In 1955. And they, um, <clears throat> the communists are organized there in the... Uh, Labor Youth League. Yeah, that was the equivalent that, of the Young Communists. That's what the YCL was called then. Yeah. And uh, so it was an affiliate of the Communist Party. Right. But most of them were sort of underground. They weren't right. known to be uh, members of LYL. Right. But you put yourself forward and you say, I want to be a visible officer of the organization. Yes, I, I want did. it to be known. I believed, I mean, my goal in high school was to be a letter leader of the Communist Party. In fact, I even got a letter, which I wish I had saved from William Z. Foster, the old head of the Communist Party, congratulating mm -hmm. me and saying he hopes, I, I wish I had that. <laughs> I don't know why I threw it out uh, or lost it, but he said, uh, <coughs> I hope you two will come into the ranks of leadership of our great working class movement. I mean, my goal, I remember telling my, one of my mm -hmm. first girlfriends on a romantic ride in the Staten Island Ferry in New York, I'm leaving high school, I'm going to be a leader of the communist movement, that's my goal in life. That and being a folk singer. Now let me, let me take you to say 1957, you're mm -hmm. a junior at the University of Wisconsin. Right. Uh, what's in your head? What's your credo? What do you believe then? What do you share with uh, your intimates by way of general political social conviction? Well, I mean, we believed in building a socialist America, in working and organizing through the Communist Party as the mechanism to produce this socialist America. But what was the America that you saw at present? And was it spelled with a K that early? No, we didn't spell. You see, the Communists were still enamored. I mean, they called their educational school in New York the Jefferson School of Social Science. We didn't go into the kind of anti-Americanism on that level that the New Left later did. No, so and as a matter of fact, we one, believe we were the real patriots. One year when Earl Browder ran for president as head of the Communist Party, their slogan, I forget which was Communism is 20th century. Is 20th century Americanism. Except that, ironically, that slogan didn't last long. And the reason it didn't last long, that's something we learned from Venona, mm -hmm. too, is that Joseph Stalin said, I don't like this slogan. It makes America seem too good in advance. Tell him to get rid of it. And they uh -huh. did, overnight. Yeah. <laughs> we had just learned that recently. Well, they can make some pretty quick shifts, of course, uh, going back to uh, uh, 39 to 41 uh, during uh, the war was on. Uh, but uh, the Hitler-Stalin pact was still in effect, 
and all the American left, led by the Communist Party, was totally against the war and against Roosevelt for trying to get us into this imperialist war. It changed. In fact, we mentioned Pete Seeger before. You have a wonderful little story I'd never heard before about an album which was anti-Roosevelt because for those reasons, and it's withdrawn the day after the uh, the, the, Almanac the Nazi Seeger, invasion. The famous protest group that Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie right. put together had an album called Meet John Doe. Franklin D, you ain't gonna send us across the sea, and uh, uh, songs like that. Uh, I hate war, and so does Eleanor. We won't be uh-huh. safe till everybody's dead, to the tune of Jesse James. I, I remember that. One. And uh, uh, lilting ballads. He never sang, sang them anymore. He was anti-war, and the the line was the the, the enemy was British imperialism. Uh, we needed peace, and then the Soviet Union. Now the the big irony of that record, literally, it was released the day Germany broke the pact, invaded the Soviet Union. So they recalled all the. Uh, records, fortunately for posterity, saved a few. It's recently been reissued in a big anthology of uh, songs of the left, uh, so he, people can hear it. Uh, uh, and then they quickly released another album where Pete Seeger sang, we haven't really understated, we haven't really agreed in the past, Mr. President, but I want to exchange my banjo for something that makes more noise, yeah. a machine gun. A uh, little too late, but... Uh, you know, I remember seeing Woody Guthrie on the streets of... Uh... Greenwich Village when I was mm-hmm. a very, very, you know, I was a high school kid and the war was on. Uh, and uh, Woody Guthrie had on his guitar, which he would walk around with, it was slung on his back. You you knew Woody Guthrie, maybe you yeah. saw that, the same thing, uh, with the legend printed on it, this machine kills fascists. Right, right. Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger were communists. I mean, they were part and parcel. The, the whole idea of Seeger always, you say, songs are weapons. That's, mm-hmm. that's the idea that... Uh, Art is a weapon. It's the old doctrine of socialist realism. We're bouncing around in time. I had you in Madison in 1957. Now we're back to earlier years with the war beginning. But um, I'm trying to get the ethos that you and your communist young colleagues shared in those days before the Vietnam War came upon us. Well, you know, we thought that, of course, the country had come out of the Korean War. As I said, I remember attending a peace rally Peace in Korea, the Communist Party is called Peace in Korea. This was an American imperialist war. And one of my friends, uh, uh, another folk singer, good friend of mine, still good friend of mine named Bob Cohen, has also changed, turned to me at this rally at Union Square in New York and said, don't we want North Korea to win? Uh, because, of course, it's just like the left and you left really wanted the Viet Cong to win. They didn't want mm-hmm. peace in Vietnam. They wanted communist victory. Uh, and they always pretended they wanted peace. Uh, but... We were coming out. We we wanted to. Pre- we saw America as an imperialist country, as head of an imperialist world system, and we believed that uh, uh, the working class would lead the country into a socialist future. So at the University of Wisconsin, I would give out the communist newspaper, the Daily Worker, uh, in front of factory gates uh, in Madison, Wisconsin. We still had a lot of factories, machine tool mm-hmm. factories, and the like. Not to mention the, the great Oscar Mayer plant. Right. I think yeah. in fact we gave out Daily Workers there too. Sure. You get your degree, you go off to the University of Iowa. Right, for one year. For one year, then back to Wisconsin for a doctorate. Uh, Among others, you're getting a doctorate in history, and among others that you work with are the then rising uh, significant American historian focused on American foreign policy, namely William Appleman Williams. Right. Williams was a, uh, a unique figure in American intellectual life. 
uh, a very creative thinker. I kind of came to feel he was essentially wrong in a lot of the things he argued, right in some of the things. But he was not a traditional old leftist. I mean, he was an American patriot. Yeah, he wasn't, he was, a, he wasn't he, a member of the Communist no, Party. No, no. He was a, uh, an officer, a graduate of Annapolis Naval Academy, severely wounded in World War II, always wore his Annapolis Naval Ring, of which he was very proud. Uh, he had his own unique, very different, very uh, in idiosyncratic theories, which irritated the old pro-communist left no end. But his uh, basic argument, and he was the, uh, the first of the great revisionist historians right. when it came to the Cold War, his basic argument was, we were responsible for the Cold War. Right. I mean, Williams, you see, his big blind spot, but he equally applied it to Nazi Germany. He saw all the foreign interventions and the, prob the tremendous pitfalls the U.S. became involved in in world affairs was always due to the United States. The United States was seeking what he called an open-door empire, the American informal empire. He said America was a unique, different kind of imperialist power. It didn't seek colonies. It seek to control the world through an empire of free trade. And this was imperialism. And he believed that the Soviet Union was a benign power just yeah. reacting to American yeah. actions and, and did nothing wrong in its and own. And there were other American historians who, who took that view. Uh, and it, properly, it was classified revisionism because it wasn't the majority view. But let me take you forward then. You get your degree, you go back to New York, and though you're offered some good jobs sort of in the capitalist world, you reject them right. on a principal Very basis. Very stupid. And you yeah, wind yeah. up teaching at uh, one of the city colleges, Queensboro. Right. Queensboro, a two-year college, yeah. a part of the city university system. And, and you taught there the for, some 30, for some right. 30 years. Right. Uh, Writing you... all the time. Right. Uh, and... Uh, you know, I had a, I was ironically offered incredible jobs, for, especially for those days, triple, quadruple the salary I mm -hmm. would, have got, would have got at the city university. Which month? I, you turned I, them down. I, I turned these down because I said, these are, I can't work for the capitalists. Yeah. It's just selling ant. I mean, at some level, it's probably good I didn't because I had a contribution to make in American intellectual life. And if I had been absorbed in the bureaucracy of these groups, I mean, one of the places I wanted mm -hmm. to hire me was KLH. Uh, the stereo manufacturer, the original yeah. KLH. What did I know about stereo? Nothing. I would have been uh, a businessman helping sell but stereo equipment. Now that we, we have to clearly pause. wasn't my future. We have to pause for some commercials. Then I want to do a quick review of your intellectual life when you were still on the left. What your major interests were, what you wrote, what organizations uh, you fronted for, uh, what publications you helped to found and helped to keep going. All of that within the space of five or six minutes before <laughs> we come to... Uh, your change of mind, which is a fascinating transition, a transition that many have been through. David Horowitz, right. a good friend of yours and a friend of mine as well, who's been on this program a number of times, is perhaps the best known of the red diaper babies who made the transition. But there are many of them. You guys ran a conference a number of years ago uh, of uh, people who had right. been through that change. We'll talk about all of those matters to continue right after we pause for these words. And we return to conversation with Ronald Radosh, that's spelled R-A-D-O-S-H, if you didn't know. Uh, his new book, Commies, A Journey Through the Old Left, the New Left, and the Leftover Left, and I'm very eager to talk about the Leftover Left before okay. we finish tonight, um, is just recently punished by Encounter Books. Um, but I was asking you, give us at least a brief overview of your academic career. During the, those 30 years you were teaching at Queensborough College, and I know you were also associated then with the uh, graduate school faculty. Right. That, you would have been based part-time in that 42nd Street right, location. Right, right. Then it was on 42nd Street. Yeah. Right. Um, 
what were your politics? What were what were you writing about? What what, what engaged well, you? Well, by the time I was in, uh, this was already I had long since left the communist movement. Was sympathetic with the independent new left uh, and uh, the faculty groups that were more or less the faculty equivalents of Students for Democratic Society. Uh, there was an adult group, the Movement for Democratic Society, uh, an academic faculty group called, I think it was called the New University Conference. Mm -hmm. all yes, there was. Mm -hmm. All radical academics, all of which I were involved in. I mean, we met regularly. We had weekly meetings. Yeah, I should have noted, of course, that mm -hmm. the opposition to the Vietnam War brought together all sorts of strands of diverse strands of radicalism right. and focus them all in one great movement. Well, we had big, big fights, in fact. I mean, uh, the I was with the Independent Committees to End the War in Vietnam, which had a big New York chapter. <clears throat> and our big issue, I mean, most of our fights were not about ending the war. We had an idea that we had to use the war to create a mass socialist movement that would oppose the system as a whole. And the, one, the people we fought who were actually controlled the major so-called mobilization that ran all the big marches in Washington were these Trotskyists who ran the Socialist Workers Party because they wanted, they were had their slogan, out now, unilateral withdrawal from Vietnam. And their idea was that they would suck people in through their broad anti-war movement they were created into their own party, the Socialist Workers Party, and they didn't want uh, the movement they were creating to raise all these other connected issues. We thought we were going to... So we had huge... The fights, we, sometimes meetings would last till 2 or 3 in the morning because the whole idea, the way factions on the left work, is you never leave and you postpone the vote till everyone leaves till your faction remains and wins the vote. So we sometimes had to stay till 3, 4, and remember 1 going at 5 in the morning because if we left, the Trotskys would win, and we wouldn't be... I don't remember what the issue of the resolution was, but it was insane. So uh, that, that's the kind of thing we were involved in. And, uh, you know, we had these independent committees to end the war in Vietnam that tried to uh, tie the Vietnam issue with racism, saying it's all one struggle and so forth. I mentioned earlier spelling America with a K. By right. that time, lots of people were doing that, and it right. meant something particular. It meant that this nation, uh, to which we about which we have been lied to, uh, was illegitimate. It was really a Nazi nation. It's really a Nazi nation. Yeah, right. That's the it's K equivalent in the Germanic uh, right, it orthography. Was equivalent of, it showed what uh, we thought of America. Yeah, America and that increasingly, that anti-American feeling increasingly became associated with many of the groups that were opposing the war. Well, well as they say that, now that people forget, you see the tie the new left to the old left here. People remember, and. Tom Hayden years ago wrote his autobiography, very whitewashed picture of himself mm, where he distorts a lot about his own past, uh, as I've argued elsewhere. But in this case, what Hayden, Hayden went to North Vietnam. And who did he go with? He went with Herbert Aftheker, the leading historian and one of the leaders of the American Communist Party. He, mm -hmm. Staunton Lynn, the historian, and uh, Hayden and Aftheker went to North Vietnam. Tom Hayden came back and said that Vietnam was building what he called a rice roots democracy. The identification was with North Vietnam as creating the great social order. It wasn't just that the U.S. should get out of this war that was immoral and imperialistic. It was that the other side was right and was building the future. And we were preventing this independent great revolutionary future from At that successful. time, did you go along with that general view of America? Uh, yes, I mean... Uh, you wrote in those terms as well. 
Oh, yes. In fact, I, I wrote when the great American socialist leader Norman Thomas died. Yeah. One of the things I wrote, uh, probably the only nasty negative obituary that appeared anywhere, it appeared in Dave Dellinger, one of the mm -hmm. peace movement leaders, magazine Liberation. I called Norman Thomas an imperialist. Remember, Norman Thomas said, uh, I don't believe in burning the American flag. I'm proud of our flag, and I want our flag to be cleansed. I, and he attacked what he called the Viet Cong's use of terrorism. And I said, the so-called terrorism of the Viet Cong is a revolutionary struggle for justice and has to be defended as right. Revolutionaries cannot, by their very nature, be terrorists because their cause is right. So their methods are just. And I take Norman Thomas as a stooge of imperialism. You were thinking the way uh, uh, Rubishov found himself thinking when, the, when in uh, Arthur Kessler's right. Darkness at Noon, he had to justify to himself the fact that he had really betrayed the revolution and they were about to execute him. Right. right. And you, you were working the dialectic so as to persuade yourself that uh, the party line was right. Right, essentially. Although I was not, uh, by then, you know, the, the new, I was not enamored with the Soviet Union or my kind. I long since left the communist movement. Mm -hmm. We believe we're going to build a new, broader, authentic socialist movement that wouldn't be tied to any one country. And the models were possibly North Vietnam, were Cuba, and were even North Korea. Yes, you see, the new left changes allegiance from Soviet Union. Our parents' generation may have been enamored with the early mm -hmm. Bolsheviks. We saw them as corrupt and ossified and bureaucratic. We turned our allegiance to the new revolution. To, to uh, Fidel Castro, a man only in his 30s when he took power in yeah. Cuba, against a, an American-backed authoritarian leader. Uh, we saw Castro as the epitome of the new... of the, what a new left so you functioned in, like. you functioned in these predictable terms and you were a, a leading intellectual on the american left writing for many of the leading mag many of the magazines well i was associated with the magazine we created in wisconsin it's called studies, studies on the left on the left grew i up around really people working largely working and influenced by yeah. william appleman williams and uh, i wrote for monthly reviews sweezy and huberman socialist magazine a marxist journal yeah. uh, Although we see the old line communists, I wrote a big article where I tried to popularize what Williams was saying. And uh, the communists attacked me. In fact, <laughs> I was officially proclaimed in their political journal uh, the leader of, quote, the Radosh tendency on the left, mm -hmm. which I thought was but hilarious. Now, I had been made a tendency. But now we have to make clear that at this moment, you are a person who, of course, investigated the Rosenbergs and convinced yourself and your readers that at least Julius Rosenberg was eminently guilty. Uh, you have even reconsidered the Vietnam War and said publicly that uh, we were probably fighting a necessary war and uh, we should have prosecuted it more fully. You've reversed yourself on many of those positions. We've got some commercials coming again. After that, we have to account for the change of mind, uh, the deep change of mind of Ronald Radosh. And from that, we go to how you see the persisting left in America today. All of that to follow right after these words. And we return to Ronald Radosh, uh, drawing from his book, Commies, The Journey Through the Old Left, the New Left, and the Leftover Left. What happened to you? Well, uh, cumulative experiences, beginning really, we talked about Cuba, with my trip to Cuba in the mid-1970s. Now, again, the New Left, you know, we took our cue from the late, famous sociologist C. Wright Mills, who wrote this book, mm -hmm. Listen Yankee, and who said, I don't worry about the Cuban Revolution, I worry with it and for it. We identified with Cuba. And finally, I got the chance to go with a trip organized by the 
Cuban government's front group in the United States and a small group of eight or ten people. The Vince Ramos Brigade? Uh, no, no, that was, the brigade was people who did work and pretended yeah. to help them out by uh, uh, picking... Cutting uh, sugar cane. This was a group uh, of more prominent people who were supposed to come back and you know propagandize on behalf of Fidel. It was sent, sponsored by the Center for Cuban Studies, the group that's just few weeks ago ran a Harry Balfanti concert at Carnegie mm. Hall. Harry's a big friend of Fidel's. Uh, so uh, I went there, stars in my eyes, really looking forward to this great experience. And it turned out to be nothing like what I expected. It, if you're honest, the Cuba was too poor a society to pull off what the Russians could do when they fooled people like Henry Wallace in the 40s with a Potemkin village tour of orchestrating whole things to make it look great. Uh, they couldn't do that. The country was too small and it was too obvious. And there were so many incidents and things that happened on that trip that opened my eyes. Here I believed in workers' rights. We went to the cigar factory where they were working. The reason the Cuban cigars were so good in the Partagas factory, which existed, I think, from what, 1857 or 1887, uh, they were doing it the same way, very dangerous in terms of health, hand-rolled with no machines, because that's what makes cigars so good. And cigars were a major export because this country needed to big, get dollars from all over the world by exporting some of the few products they had. And cigars were one of them. And they had you know, worked in tremendous pace. And they explained to us that they had this quota that had to be met. And I raised the obvious question. What if uh, the quota was, it was too hard to fulfill and they couldn't reach it? What would you do? They said you have to, in other words, hand roll so many cigars per week. What if they couldn't do it? It was too hard to meet that. I said, oh, no, we have to do it. If that's the quota, it's because it can be met. I said, but what if they can't do it? I said, well, then we work 12 hours a day instead of eight. We work Saturdays and Sundays. They get no days off. I said, well, what if the workers don't like it? Uh, can they protest through the union? Oh, of course not, because the union uh, is there to show the workers the need to implement the plan uh, created by the party. So it was so clear. There was no such thing as workers' rights. Then we had the incident I talk about in the book of going through a refrigerator factory where the room was raining asbestos. And we were coughing our way through this room. It was like snow. And we were going through in five minutes. We just rushed through this place because we couldn't stand being there. Plus, it was 100 degrees and there's no air conditioning. It was, it's horrible. And I noticed all the people are working in this room, breathing this stuff in, and they're not wearing masks. They're not wearing gloves. They're, I said... You know, this is dangerous. Most of them are probably dead by I now. I said that to them. I said, these people are going to be dead in 10 years. Why yeah. aren't they wearing even... You know, they got to work in here. You need this for the coin. I don't know what they use the asbestos for, but that's what the refrigerators were coated with inside. And I, they said, well, I said, this isn't safe. They'll probably be dead in 10 years. So, oh, no, it's safe. I said, well, it's not safe. Everyone knows asbestos is dangerous. No, if it was dangerous, Fidel would have told us and it wouldn't be permitted. Mm. So, of course, it's not dangerous. I mean, there was, there was insane. And then, of course, the most incredible incident of all, and the chapter is called Socialist Lobotomies. I gave the punchline away. But uh, we went to the mental hospital, which was their showcase. Beautiful facility. Looked gorgeous. I mean, if I was going to be institutionalized, I wanted, the grounds were lovely their own baseball team, their own stadium, individual units instead of mass wards. Lovely. But all the people we saw were totally spaced out. They looked like walking zombies. And then the doctor in charge told us that he was proud that their institution had the greatest percentage of lobotomies of any institution in the world. They said something phenomenal figure, like maybe almost close to 80% of the patients were lobotomized. Now, that stunned us. And one of the members of this small group 
was in the Radical Therapy Collective in New York. And he said, this is horrible. This is everything I'm working against in this country. Lobotomies are dangerous. You just don't lobotomize all patients. I thought they were tranqu on tranquilizers, but the doctor said... Yeah. There, there are a number of different ways of doing lobotomies. Yeah. So basically, yeah. would you cut off the functioning of the frontal lobes? Yeah. So... He said, no, Which no, renders people rather vegetative and uh, like. unemotional. Right, right. So he said there are great, tremendous percentage of lobotomies. And he said, this is horrible. This is horrible. And a woman in the group, Suzanne Ross, who formed another very prominent American radical, turned with real hostility in her face and looked at us and said, you have to understand the difference between capitalist lobotomies and <laughs> socialist lobotomies. And she was not kidding. Uh -huh. uh, so that Cuban experience... Then, years later, comes the 80s, and I started out in the beginning of the Reagan era as an opponent of American foreign policy. I said I had every platitude about the civil wars that were brewing in El Salvador and Guatemala in Nicaragua. Uh, I said the U.S. is trying to uh, uh, interfere with what Walter Lefebvre called inevitable revolutions. We have to let these revolutions develop because people want their independence. And you weren't just saying this in uh, late parties in... Greenwich Village Apartments. You were writing it vigorously in many publications. Oh, yeah. yeah. And giving uh, speeches around right, the country. Right, right. So. Marching to, marching to yeah. Washington. And I became involved. In fact, I threw a folk music concert for the uh, Democratic Revolutionary Front, the front group of the guerrillas in El Salvador in New York. I emceed it. Uh, I put together this big concert early. And then I became very involved in Central America, and the Sandinistas had taken power in Nicaragua. And you went down there? And I went down there for the New Republic magazine, and uh, that began to open my eyes out. What I saw was a repeat of the Cuban experience. I said Nicaragua was not what the Reaganites had said it was in the early stages, but I saw very clearly that Daniel Ortega and the Sandinista commandantes were trying to impose and build and create a totalitarian system based on the Soviet Cuban model in Nicaragua. And that the whole myth that they were an independent, autonomous, indigenous force was really <laughs> false. And I got to go back again a few years later, three years later, for the New Republic, and the situation had worsened tremendously. And I wrote, I was still opposed to the Contras. I wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times against the Contras, but saying the Sandinistas' repression had to be opposed and was, uh, they were oppressing the Nicaraguan people themselves while claiming to speak on their behalf. And gradually, with many, I then got involved with human rights work, going to visit and interview Nicaraguan refugees in Honduras and Costa Rica, and uh, found evidence of, that turned out to be true of gross abuse of human rights. Plus, the Sandinistas, like Somoza before them, was were using bombs to bomb uh, territories to obliterate populations that they thought would be friendly to the countries. Years ago, when the Soviet Union was fairly new, Lincoln Steffens, the great American leftist uh, muckraking journalist, went over there for a visit. He was very impressed. Came back, you remember the famous quotation, he said, I've been over into the future and it works. You went over into the future and well, you what found we saw it didn't, is work, that it at didn't all. work as yeah. in fact even I suspect Primo Gorbachev found himself yeah. uh, realizing that at the end. Uh, at least Boris Yeltsin realized that. When, when did you begin to dis disentangle yourself and disaffiliate? Well, by the, as I said, it was really, uh, and of course the Rosenberg file and the reaction to get back to that, the re vicious yeah. reaction on the left. That book was published uh, what year? 83. 1983. And you were heavily attacked on the left. Heavily, that's putting it mildly. I mean, it was, I was subject to every calumny you could think of. And uh, 
even the people I respected most on the left, the moderates, the Democratic leftists, particularly Irving Hamill and Michael Harrington, mm -hmm. who I respected greatly, were long ago... Those are the guys who said to you, communism. yeah, we know it's true he was guilty, but well, don't say what, it. Well, what they said, particularly at that point, Harrington was was talking about merging his group, uh, DSOC, with the, with the old remnants from the new left, uh, yeah. called the New American Movement, into a new group, which he called Democratic Socialists of America. And he said to me, bluntly, look... We're trying to recruit former communists who still believe in the Soviet Union into our group. And if I give you a blurb or say the Rosenbergs were guilty, they'll never join our group. And he's, and then he said, very good, I'm willing to say when you're attacked that I don't think you're a McCarthyite. I said, thanks a lot, Mike. Mm -hmm. Irving Howe, who once was considered a notorious anti-communist, critic, early critic mm -hmm. of the left, in fact, hated by the but, uh, an, uh, Irving a leftist, Howe. A leftist anti-communist. Yes, was. but he said, I want nothing to do with this. I, I will not give you a blurb. And he just stormed away. And in fact, he came to the famous town hall debate we had in the book with the Schneers, who claimed the architects of the conspiracy theory about the Rosenbergs. And after that meeting, uh, which was a very emotional event, went on for hours uh, in town hall, packed to capacity. Irving Howe uh, was not too happy with me. He he would rather this whole thing not have been raised and that I never wrote this book. And that, you know, I, what is it that these people who I respected, even these moderates of the left, were opposed to reevaluating and stating the truth about the Rosenbergs? You know, I must, uh, we don't ordinarily take calls or emails until later mm -hmm. in the program, and I haven't yet invited such calls or emails, though shortly we're going to the news, and later on we will be taking them on 591. 7200 or the email to extension 720 at tribune.com but i must pause for a moment to read you one email that has come in oh, okay. uh it's titled subject horowitz is an idiot mm -hmm. and it reads how the heck can you criticize a third world country that has been embargoed for over 40 years by the richest country in the world mr horowitz i'm mr horowitz oh, <laughs> cuba is a third world perhaps even a fourth world country whatever advances they have in their country applies to third world values not to first world values he conf he con conflates you with our friend yeah, david well, horowitz well, well, who we're all has the had same, a similar know. history right, to right. yours yes i'm not david horowitz uh, but i'm sure i agree with david horowitz yep, on uh, this point so that's all right <laughs> at any rate uh, in a moment we do have to pause for some commercials i'm terribly interested in what you've got to say about the leftover left um but we haven't quite finished uh, your hegira, your uh, mm -hmm. your move from Mecca to Medina, I guess, uh, and you're not going back to Mecca, as no. a matter of fact. Um, what finally consolidated is that conference. Well, there are none left except for North Korea, and I wouldn't go there. <laughs> uh, but there was that conference that you and David Harwood, right. whom we just mentioned, and uh, Peter Collier and a number of others organized, of people who had made that shift out of uh, the Marxist-dominated left. Uh, and we need to talk about that. And I'm very interested in the leftover left. They are basically leftover in the uh, institutions that I haunt, namely the American universities, uh, where I think they are doing great, uh, uh, great wreckage. And I trust we can talk about all of that as we follow on right after a quick update on the evening's news from Andrea Darla. And directly back to Ronald Radosh as we draw from his new book, Commies, that is published by Encounter Books, a very important uh, firm that gen started up a few years ago. Uh, Peter Collier is the right. main mover. Right. And they're publishing a lot of very interesting stuff, almost all of, all of it nonfiction, and right. pointed towards um, the kinds of issues that we're discussing right. tonight. Uh, 
Was there a moment of truth in your life? Well, there was no one. You know, in the old communist movement, the joke was, when was your Kronstadt? Referring to the first uh -huh. event in communist history that disillusioned people when Trotsky's Trotsky. Red Army fired on the rebellious soldiers, sailors at Kronstadt right, yeah. in 1917. And uh, true communists would say, I will never have a Kronstadt. And eventually, everyone has one and leaves. And they get mad at the people who didn't leave when they leave and leave after them. Uh -huh. But... Uh, I never had any one thing. It was a cumulative effect of all these things put together that made me rethink these fundamental assumptions. I mean, it, it was hard. Not What you have to realize, and it goes back to what we said at the beginning, the left is like a church. You don't want to leave the true church because it's your friends, it's your way of life, it's your family, and it means you're going to have some painful times where you lose friends. I have very few, some good friends. One of my wife's closest friends, a roommate at college, broke all relations with us, uh, considered an enemy of the people. I mean, even when the Rosenberg work, before it came out, I had written for the New Republic a preliminary article a couple of years before the book came out. And people knew I was working in the book. And one of our friends at Cape Cod, a very well-known radical feminist, said called me up as soon as we got there on vacation. We want to convene a meeting where everyone will get together and tell you why you have to stop this and not write this book. We, we, they wanted to re-educate me and have a, a mm -hmm. session like that. And when I didn't, when I kept going ahead, these people all fell by the wayside. I mean, people would call me up. Uh, uh, one woman called me up, uh, who I used to know from summer camp and from the Young Communist Movement, daughter of a very famous radical lawyer uh, who I actually interviewed for the book. And she said... Uh, I want you to know you're a traitor. I hate you. You can't. I mean, people would call me up and scream at me. Uh, so it means a very painful readjustment where other people would say, I'm tired of defending you. I really don't know if I can be friends with you anymore. I only have one friend on the left, one guy in New York, uh, a new leftist who was never pro-Stalinist, a historian, still my good friend. I acknowledge him in the book. He doesn't agree with me about anything, but he uh, respects me, and we are still friends. But that's the only one. I moved to ask you, uh, but you still haven't told me just how you made the switch, and we'll come to that in a moment. Are most of the people you knew who were on the left, and mo the people you're referring to now, are most of them still essentially Marxist or post-Marxist and still uh, essentially uh, uh, very critical of and distrusting of America and looking for socialist reorganization of the world? Uh, some have. Some have moved more towards... Uh, what I would call the left wing of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. They've given up on socialism, but they still hold the same general philosophical viewpoint. They're against it, any measures to build up America's defense capacity. They're for revolutions ab abroad. They're against American foreign policy. They don't necessarily consider themselves on the left, and they are furious about the gaining strength of, they, uh, of the so-called right wing. Uh, others of them, many of them I know, still are firmly in the left, still looking for some socialist regroupment. They have not changed, particularly those in the academy. Have People they also be... turned toward sexual politics, concerned about well, the abortion, women have. concerned oh, about um, women's liberation, concerned about uh, civil rights, in quotes, for gays, lesbians, uh, transsexuals. Well, a lot uh, of the left cetera, moved away from the old class politics of the communist socialist movement to the identity politics and the cultural politics of the proto-radical feminist left, where mm -hmm. they view everything, uh, the issues are gender and race, and uh -huh. they transferred their passion and their leftism 
uh, to these new causes and new movements. Absolutely. Gender and race and particularly cultural. the women, particularly the women <coughs> and cultural were... diversity, and those are the main some of the main themes they play all the time in their transformation of some of the social uh, disciplines and uh, the discipline of history and so on. We need to talk about that shortly, and we will. I've got to pause in a moment for some commercials, and before that, it is time to invite telephone calls. Five nine one seven two double zero is the number for any question you'd like to pose to Ron Radosh or for any statement of conviction uh, that you'd like to offer. A conviction can be right or left or middle or none of the above. 591-7200 is the number. The lines are available to you. Also available for those who are listening on the internet at some greater distance in another country or off on one of the coasts or whatever uh, is uh, the email. The email address extension 720 at tribune.com. Extension 720 at tribune.com. We'll be directly back to conversation with Ron Radlush and shortly onto your calls and or emails. First, these words. Um, and we go directly back to Ronald Radlush. Um, there's so much more I'd like to talk with you about, and I wish we had uh, you here for the week instead of for the mere two <laughs> hours. And we do shortly want to get to the phones, the number 591-7200. But your observations about what you call the leftover left, if they're leftover, where are they left? Well, they're leftover. The younger kids who... Uh, are particularly fairly thoughtless and almost illiterate. The, the nihilists, the kids who throw rocks at Starbucks or go on the streets in Seattle, who uh, they're the descendants. They've learned the tactics of the new left in the 60s, but they don't even have any vision or any ideology, uh, except they call themselves anarchists, if they even know what that means. Their interviews I've seen in, indicates that's fairly. But then the the real left is permeates the American Academy, the world of the Academy, and it's there that the worst stuff is coming out. Gender politics, uh, the uh, deconstructionism, the takeover of the English departments, the ideological politics where everything is politicized. Uh, I mean, very, very disparaging. Uh, in, the, in my field in American history, uh, you look at the historical conventions, the two biggest historical associations sound like, from the stuff they publish and the stuff they said at the conventions, like left-wing pressure groups. Uh, the two presidents of the two major associations of history, uh, one was David Montgomery, who was a longtime Marxist and pro-communist, who gave a speech I analyzed in the column I write, uh, at his speech at the uh, presidential speech of that association, which was straight out old left pro-communist uh, propaganda. I mean, that's what it read like. The other, one of the most eminent historians in the United States, Eric Foner of Columbia University, wrote a book, The Triumph of American Freedom, which, as Theodore Draper pointed out in the New York Review of Books, the only organization he sees to give unstinting praise to in the whole history of American freedom is the Communist Party of the United States. What makes him one of the most eminent historians? Well, he comes he from a dynasty a, of communist Yes, but he has a chair. He is uh, president of the American Historical Association, the past president, the biggest professional association of historians. He has a chair in history at Columbia University, once held by the great Richard Hofstetter. He's, uh, he is considered one of the most eminent important historians the in the United of, States. Of Philip Foner? No, no, he was the, uh, that was his uncle. He's the son, mm. I think, of the late Jack Foner. Uh, there were three Foner brothers, yeah. but uh, he comes from an old, old left communist family. And uh, while he has actually done some significant work in Reconstruction history, which is his own field, 
he very much functions when he writes about the 20th century. Uh, he writes like a pro-communist ideologue. I have seen the University of Chicago, where I've been uh, a member of the faculty for over 30 years. I have seen it uh, increasingly in the humanities and in the so-called social science, I would call them social discipline departments, uh, bringing in people who uh, are essentially leftist in orientation. And if you just look at the course catalogs, uh, by the very titles of the courses, you sense the change. Well, some of them are so outrageous and so outlandish. I don't can't, can't remember any of the quote, but it's, some of them are, are so scandalous you can't believe courses like this are being true. And the worst schools are, by and large, the Ivy League Absolutely. universities, Absolutely. schools like Brown University in Rhode Island. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, the problem my good friend David Horace has had with the opposition to his ad uh, against reparations for African Americans, whatever one thinks of that issue, the attempt to block the statement of his position as racist is outrageous. It's like a new kind of McCarthyism. And at Brown University, uh, 75 faculty members, prestigious figures in all fields, signed a petition urging uh, that his, his point of view not be heard on the campus. At the University of Wisconsin, the deans and the heads of all the departments signed a petition saying that his uh, point of view should not be presented on the campus. Used to be the students, it's now the faculty, and I think what has happened is a lot of the 60s new left, they didn't go into the factories, they weren't colonizing in the working class like the old communists, they went into the universities, mm -hmm. and they've essentially taken them over. By now they're not both. just professors, they're deans, they're deans they're and administrators, de deans and even presidents. And a lot of them are worse than the students. Uh, the worst political repression and attack of free thought is coming from administrations. The uh, board that I'm proudest to be a member of is of an organization whose acronym is FIRE, F-I-R-E, the Foundation for Individual Rights in right. Education. Uh, which a good historian, Alan Coors is. Alan is a superb right. uh, monitor of these matters, right. and we find cases all the time right. of the violation of the rights of faculty and the rights of students right. to express opinions that are uh, any place to the right of left of center. Right. I mean, you know, that comes from faculty and from administrators, and it's astounding. And if you look at the names of the people, I mean, I even recognize many of the names signing these petitions against David Horowitz. Uh, many of the names are people I knew 20, 30 years ago mm -hmm. on the left. They're in the universities in prominent positions, in the Ivy colleges, and they're the ones signing these petitions against freedom of speech. It's the old idea we got, I think, from Herbert Marcuse in the 1960s. He called it repressive tolerance. Mm -hmm. Only the left has a right for freedom of speech because the right does not have a right, or those who are against the left have no right because they're oppressing the people. Free speech only for those you agree with. Wasn't the co-author of that book your friend Alan Wolf? Uh, which book? The one in which he advocates repressive tolerance. No, 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 no. Uh, Marcuse, uh, Marcuse wrote his books on his own. No, there's a co-author to that particular book. Mm, and, no, it was not Alan Wolf. I'm no. sure. Of it. I'm glad it wasn't, because no. I met Alan no. Wolf, and I've worried about that. Uh, we are going to go to the phones. 591-7200 is the number, and here is the first. Hello, you're on the air. Good evening, and uh, I certainly must uh, get your guest's uh, new book, because I find this uh, discussion fascinating. And I would say, I, I believe it was Winston Churchill, was it not, who said that uh, if you're a young man and you're not liberal, you don't have a heart. If you're an old man and you're not conservative, you don't have a brain. Uh, I think it was him. And right, I, it was. Uh, pardon me? It was. It was. All right. I don't know if that explains my journey toward conservatism or not, but I... How old are you? I'm in my late 40s. 
and uh, I shared many of those kinds of attitudes uh, at that time. But what I find now, and, and what I think a lot of people on the left need to know about people who are on the right, is that that not only am I deeply troubled by uh, by what I see as a sense of this creeping, I would I, I refer to it frequently as an intellectual fascism, or the points that you were just making just now that that only the left should have the right to to free, freedom of speech because those who are not on the left are pre are 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 uh, uh, on on their uh, you know fundamentally uh, oppressing everyone and that that uh, that in fact uh, th- that is the only true doctrine it's almost a religious fervor and frankly uh, I and many people find that uh, threatening and and dangerous in many respects and I don't know whether that perception. Uh, is warranted whether this is just a lot of sound and fury coming from academia or whether the perception that many of us have that these kinds of attitudes and this kind of uh, this kind of self-anointed uh, righteousness which seems to be creeping into so many parts of uh, our society is in fact a real phenomena that we have a need to be frightened of well i think it, i think i agree with everything you said i th- i think that in fact it is not a minor matter. I think it is very important and very, very dangerous. I mean, the uh, if you take kids on the campus, uh, they are being taught that certain positions cannot be advocated because, quote, they hurt people of color or they are positions oppressive of women. It shuts off debate. It shuts off thinking. It shuts off evaluating and being able to think for yourself and have a debate on fundamental issues. Uh, the left is very influential, and as I say, they really do control a lot of universities, both the administrations and the faculties. And in the name of education, they are preventing students from being able to learn to think freely. And that is a mockery of the whole purpose of education. Sir, um, you say you're eager to read this book. Let me tell you, of course, you can get it in any store where they sell real books, or you can get it by going to the website of this program. Go to extension, rather go to WGNRadio.com and then to extension 720 and check on our monthly schedule. And for Thursday, 31st of May, you find a description of what we're doing tonight and uh, a picture of the cover of the book. If you click on that, it takes you directly to the Barnes & Noble page where you can purchase the book at a reasonable discount. Certainly my most favorite bookstore uh, uh, in the universe. Thank you, sir. All right. Glad to have heard from you, and we go quickly to another. Hello, you're on the air. Yeah, I'd basically like to know what uh, you think uh, somebody like Noam Chomsky, Michael Parenti, Howard Zinn, maybe Gore Vidal, mm-hmm. but especially Noam Chomsky. All very little <laughs> of them. Uh, yes, Noam. And they I, probably I, think little of you. Oh, I'm sure. Noam Chomsky, I, I've seen one of his recent books. He mentioned me uh as a psychophant of the State Department, the CIA, or something like that. So I'm glad I must have means I must have got to him in something I wrote. Uh, Noam Chomsky. I mean, I I think that was cut out of the book. I mean, uh, but I, elsewhere I've said uh, I used to know Noam Chomsky, uh, and I'll just tell you one incident. This is uh, I used to vacation in Cape Cod in Wellfleet, and I saw Noam Chomsky. I was a guest in his home. We'd have political discussions. And Noam Chomsky told me, I've said this before, I've put this in print before, and it's absolutely true. Uh, Noam Chomsky told me that he would not, uh, uh, we talked about Cuba, 
And he said, well, one of the reasons they've never gone to Cuba is I know it's a repressive Stalinist state. And if I went there, I'd have to defend Cuba. So I'm not going to put myself in that position. I'm not going to go there. He said, the only time I've made that exception, I went to North Vietnam. And of course, since North Vietnam is directly under the attack of American imperialism, I defend North Vietnam, Vietnam and don't tell the truth about it. This is a great intellectual. He said to me, in effect, he knows North Vietnam is a repressive Stalinist state, but he's not going to say that because they're under attack from American imperialism. I was also reading a book, uh, the first book by now, a, a big fi figure in the energy field, Daniel Juergen, once wrote a moderate revisionist book on the Cold War. And it had just come out, and I was reading it. Noam Chomsky, I was carrying it with me, and Noam Chomsky said to me, what are you reading this book for? I said, well, it's very interesting. He talks about the views of policymakers. He said, it's all worthless. It's not important. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, because everyone knows it's the Rockefellers and the Council of Foreign Relations that controls everything, and all these people just do their bidding. I mean, Noam Chomsky was so crude and such an anti-intellectual, I completely lost all respect for him after that conversation. And, but he is so discredited that, you know, he can't even, he's even forbidden to write in the li very liberal New York Review of books. I mean, Noam Chomsky's appeal is to the kids who like rage against the machine, the rock group, the radical rock group that's now disbanded from Cambridge, from Harvard, uh, who evidently in their concerts, it sounds very Orwellian, play Noam Chomsky over the loudspeakers during intermission. As they, I guess they think the kids who come to their rock band will, will learn something from This caller mentioned a few others. One of the ones that interests me, he's been on this program, though I turned him down the last one or two times he was offered, is Gore Vidal. Oh, I think Gore Vidal, I think, is the most outrageous... Uh, uh, phony, intellectual, and uh, truly anti-Semitic. Yeah. Uh, and, and, That's what and, began to get to me after a while. And I think he is uh, just pompous and arrogant. The thing, he, he, you know, I read the Nation magazine, so I read Gore Vidal's essays whenever they come out in there. They are so incredible. And his latest thing, I said in a, a column I wrote that Gore Vidal has reached a new low with his praise of Timothy McVeigh. And someone said, how could Gore Vidal reach a new low? He's down there already. It's not a new low. Uh, what he said about Timothy McVeigh is that he's a great young man with a sensitive understanding of American democracy. And this is so off the wall, it's beneath comment. Sir? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I find what you say interesting. I'm not an expert in these matters. I try to educate myself in these matters. You know, I've picked up, I've read a few Chomsky, a few of Chomsky's books, uh, Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. I just, it seems like Chomsky is a more, I mean, you have to take what he says seriously. I mean, even the New York Times praises him as one of the most oft-quoted individual uh, intellectuals aside from Plato, Aristotle, well, Freud. You, you must remember, of course, there are two Noam Chomskys. There's Chomsky, the structural linguist, who right. is one of the major linguists uh, in, in, the, in modern intellectual life. He's made basic innovations uh -huh. and changed that science. And then there's Chomsky, the political commentator, who is rather an ass. Right. <laughs> I well, agree with that. I'll have to take what you say seriously, because like I say, I'm not an expert. Well, you'll have to at the moment, because we've got to stop for some commercials, whether you take it seriously or otherwise. I do thank you uh, sincerely for the call, and we'll be right back after this. And back to Ronald Radosh, and directly back um, to your calls forum. After I note that the publishers in Counter Books uh, do a very interesting publishing program, a lot of fine work. If you want to look over their offerings, again, you can find it easily on the Internet. Uh, simply go to EncounterBooks.com and... You can examine the 20 or so uh, books that they've got uh, in print at the moment. 
probably more than that. 591-7200 is the number. You are the next caller. Good evening. Yeah, hello. Uh, first of all, I'd like to know, is is this the Ronald Radish who rode Jack Tar in the streets? No, that's my friend. <laughs> Absolutely not. Boy, I'm getting confused with everyone. That was written by the person I alluded to before, my one still good friend on the left, Jesse Lemish. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> okay, well, anyways, um, I, I would just like to say uh, I, I don't think uh, that... Uh, uh, we're being uh, completely uh, fairly represented by you guys because uh, I think that uh, if if the sir, uh, a word of advice: you're confusing yourself by leaving your radio on, and that yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. Just yeah, slow, it's just in the background. Turn yeah. it down, and it'll be. Yeah, I, for it's you. in the other room. Okay, I think that uh, uh, you know. First of all, I think that. We need to uh, think about, you know, you talk about Ethel Rosenberg. Ethel Rosenberg had rickets. Did anybody, any of you guys have rickets? No. I think that, you know, we need to think about what these people were reacting to. I personally uh, went to uh, college as a, uh, a scholarship student. And uh, I was, uh, and, and is this country great? Yes, it is, because it, it, it accepted me there. And uh, I was able to have a career. But um, I, I think you need to think that there are reasons that people react to capitalist society the way that they do. And yes. while we're getting a response from Ronald Radosh, sir, it really would be wise if you turned down that radio, yes. even if it's in the other room. Okay. Well, I mean, American society has imperfections, has inequities, has had horrible things in the past, the history of American slavery and racism in the 1940s. America is a democracy that has evolved and that has progressed and moved towards fulfillment of the ideals that the country stands for. It's a, country, it's a system that has grown and evolved, fortunately, without the need for any basic social revolution. And there may be some problems with capitalism. There may be structural problems. Uh, but nothing else uh, has proved any better. As Churchill said, it's the, best, it's the worst system except for all the others. Uh, American democracy and the American market system has produced prosperity and economic growth. That's why all the rest of the world wants to achieve what the United States has achieved. I agree. Well, if you agree, then we've reached uh, some consensus, and we thank you, sir, for the call, and we'll go quickly to another. Hello, you're on the air. Hi, good evening. Uh, I have just recently read uh, the famous book, I'm sure you know it, uh, The Road to Serfdom by uh, Frederick von Hyde, right. which was written in the midst of World War II and '44. And I think can he made. I, can I be uh, a touch on the uh, pretentious side? Sure. He, he's not Frederick von Hayek. It's Ludwig von Mises, but Hayek was not a fun. He's just <laughs> Friedrich oh. Hayek. All right. All right. <laughs> Thanks for the question. Not at all. Um, well, anyway, I think one of the key points of the book, again written in '44, is that Nazism is um, or was a simply, if you can use the word simply a logical extension of the socialism and communism that just happened to get accelerated 
due to the particulars of uh, Germany at the time, Bismarck Republic, uh, the large central state that was established uh, in the early part of the century, and things like German efficiency and so on and so forth. And, and he further makes the point, uh, it's, uh, it's a prophecy almost, that those who escaped the persecution and, and would come to the United States would continue the uh, march of um, communism uh, after they arrived here, and that they would really be unaware of the fact that they're really uh, just uh, planting the seeds of the same eventual uh, sort of thing in the United States. And uh, if you accept that, I, what I find is uh, what is very curious uh, today is that there's a huge amount of education that goes on about uh, Nazism, the Holocaust, the movies um, uh, from Spielberg, so on and so forth. But there's almost nothing that kids learn in school, nor do you see in the popular media about the enormous body count, if you just want to measure it by bodies, of, uh, of the left. Not, it's, you, kids these days don't learn a thing about what really went on. Well, I, I would have to, of course, agree with that. Fortunately, you know, there are a lot of uh, a lot of resources out there besides going back to uh, the early free marketeer philosophers like Hayek and like Van Mises. But uh, right. but uh, there's, to my being, the 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 most important book telling the truth about uh, written perhaps in the past ten years is the late Francois Furet's book. Uh, on the idea of communism in the 20th century, I mean, mm -hmm. a masterpiece uh, mm -hmm. by someone who used to be on the left, reevaluating what the idea of communism meant and how it distorted a whole generation. Mm -hmm. a, a masterpiece. There, there are mm -hmm. books like that. And of course, there's the Black Book of Communism that has chapters outlining the truth about what happened in all these different societies. Well, the, for instance, you're talking about uh, universities, but and I'm, it's been a topic on this show many times, how uh, elementary education uh, is, is failing us, too. But you, you probably know in Illinois, it's, there is a, there's a law to the effect that you must, uh, you must teach a uh, section on the Holocaust. No such requirement for anything else uh, in, the, in the way of atrocities. Uh, kids don't learn a single thing about anything uh, along those lines these days. Absolutely nothing. Well, they're too busy. They're too busy getting sex education. No, no. Well, that that absolutely. That, that's crowding. Case. That's crowding out more and more of the curriculum, even in elementary. I school. must say, I was lucky. Yeah. In my son's high school. My son is now a junior in uh, college, but his high school in a suburb of D.C. in Montgomery County, he had the most wonderful classical education with the best history teacher in the world, the, the way we all like it to be. So I, yeah. I, I would say, I guess I looked out that there are still some public schools in this country that do provide good education. The choice, the choice of school is increasingly difficult and yeah. very much a challenge. Sir, we thank you for the call. You're welcome. Excellent contribution. Here is another critical one coming in via email. This is from a well-known journalist, uh, I guess. Uh, and I guess I'll give his name because the name is on uh, the ordinary. We don't give names. It's from Salim Muakil, do you know him? From In These Times. Right? Uh, he writes in, in These Times. He right. also writes for some of the Chicago newspapers. Right. And he says, uh, Mr. Radosh, you're the one hurling canards with these horror stories about, quote, dangerous and reckless academics. Your narrative of left to right is, I'm afraid, a bit banal. That story journey, a, re a trajectory traveled also by your host, Mr. Rosenberg, is a well-worn road at once familiar and trite 
to talk of the, quote, left over left is to talk nonsense. I hate to get dialectical here, but there would be no, quote, right without a, quote, left. To talk as if only the right is right is to ignore the nature of reality. Well, he, he raises uh, many different points. I'm, I'm glad he's listening. I would urge him uh, to actually buy and read my book before saying it's trite and banal, because I think that maybe, I hope, I would even convince someone like him. Uh, I don't say... He's an interesting fellow. He's been a guest on this Yeah, I don't say the right is uh, correct about everything. I'm sure if we sat down and talked over specific issues, I would be opposed to many things that some people on the right believe. I'm, for, for example, I'm pro-choice. I am not uh, uh, in favor of uh, uh, the arguments for the right to life. Uh, I, I believe that in, argument, issues have to be judged individually on their own merit or lack of merit. Where I think I line up largely on the conservative side is a lot of these social and cultural issues where I think the left has had a, a horrendous deleterious effect uh, on the moral and cultural integrity of the country and that uh, a lot of the programs they favor. For example, I think that uh, something that evolved as a conservative idea that even the centrist Democrats had to finally mm -hmm. adopt, welfare reform, for example, that would have not happened if not for the early neoconservative critiques was and the need to do away with a harmful welfare system, which is uh, a great blight upon the advance of people uh, who are poor being able to get out of poverty. The conservatives made the critique first, and centrist leader, Democrats, like those in the Democratic Leadership Council and the Progressive Policy Institute, adopted and favored some of those ideas, even though they still consider themselves Democrats. So I think that uh, the left as an institution, opposes all the necessary rethinking. It's a left that's reflective and seems unable to rethink scores of things that need to be rethought. Um, we will pause for a last round of commercials and then directly back to the phones. On 591-7200, and if you are moved to send us an email, the email is and remains eternally open, uh, and that's extension 720 at Tribune.com, extension 720 as one word, at Tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E, dot com. Right back after this. And we go directly back to the telephones, 591-7200, the number. And uh, if anyone listening elsewhere on the Internet or otherwise would like to reach us via email, the email is available, extension 720, one word, at Tribune.com. You are on the air. Good evening. Yes, good evening. Yes, sir. Um, I'm 33 years old, and... I've recently gone back to school here in Chicago. I'm going to a technical institute here in the city, and frankly, I had to I had to take this class. It was called sociology, and I was really shocked by the level of victimization that they're trying to sell to the people that are in that class. But I just say that as an aside. Uh, my question is: I'm interested to know what this gentleman might have to say about Mr. Nader and the effort that he made here in 2000. Uh, I voted for Mr. Nader, and quite frankly, uh, I did lose lifelong friends over it. Uh, people won't talk to me. Uh, I've just basically oh, been just shut out on some of this stuff. Are they not? Are they Democrats oh, who are furious that you voted for Nader shrill. because you just should have voted for Gore? Absolutely furious. And these guys have got this steel trap mentality to it that 
I refuse to vote for a winner. And it's, it's, I just refuse to come off the fact that it's not necessarily about voting for a winner. I didn't, I didn't appreciate the fact that Mr. Gore seemed to have an inclination to say whatever was necessary to draw attention to himself of the moment. And the Republican Party doesn't appeal to me because I think they're putting too many people in prison for things that they don't have any mind for. It's none of their business what people want to put into their bodies or how they want to exercise their freedoms. So I think that Mr. Nader, uh, I think that Mr. Nader has had and taken the opportunity to be one of the great citizens that's ever lived on the planet. Uh, I think he's worked hard to to really uh, better the lives of people, common people, and he hasn't necessarily gone out and strived for the political glory. And I had a lot of respect for the gentleman, and I was pleased to vote for him. But I think that I'm wondering if there is an opportunity for uh, folks such as yourself. I was at this community meeting a couple of months ago, and I was talking to this lady, and the lady said to me, you know, sometimes you sound so conservative, and then the next, in the next breath, you're the most liberal person I've ever met. And I turned to her, and I just said, well, it's not easy being green. And I'm, I'm wondering what this dynamic is for the future, and uh, if you have an inclination to uh, lend it some uh, lend it well, some well, you seem like someone who tries to maintain an independent stance and evaluate things uh, uh, on what you see as their merit or lack of merit. Well, which is this, a, is, this is the uh, thing. I see myself as a human being first. I see myself as an American citizen second, and all other things do not matter. And in the Democratic Party, all that matters is your gender and your race. And you're in Chicago today, and this is a Democratic town, and we live in a salad bowl in Chicago. It's not the mixing pot. The blacks live with the blacks. The Puerto Ricans live with the Puerto Ricans. We don't mix with one another. And it's the Democratic Party that controls that process here in our city. Well, I and it breaks my heart, really. I wouldn't disagree with you about the Democratic Party. I'm not, as you might suspect, as enamored of Mr. Nader as, as you are. In fact, yeah. I think that uh, his campaign, I think, on many levels... I mean, I agree with what you say about Gore. I think Gore ran a terrible campaign. Oh, sure. A horrendous campaign. But I think Nader uh, was fairly off the wall. I think his econo a lot of his economic arguments don't hold up. Uh, if you look back, and I don't, don't have the details on my fingertips, but there was an incredible debate in the letters column of the New Republic between John Judas, a very smart journalist, and Ralph Nader, in which Judas just tore Nader apart in the facts. Nader could not come back. I, I, I would urge you to try and look that up if you can get those back issues in a library. I thought it was a big mistake that, that Gore didn't lend an opportunity to put Nader on the stage and tear him up himself. Probably Gore was a The problem with Gore's campaign, I think, is that Gore, you know, Marty Peretz, the publisher, Gore's friend, publisher of the New Republic, uh, tried to argue in the Wall Street Journal right before the election. He had a piece saying Gore was a moderate centrist, not an extremist. And I think he's probably right. Uh, but Gore ran a campaign because he had to appeal to the left-wing uh, factional interest groups of the Democratic Party, particularly the gender race uh, people. And he probably came out taking positions that he really, really doesn't himself really agree with. Well, it will be interesting. I think that I see these people that were involved in this Nader movement uh, for what, whatever ill or benefit there may be there in terms of the delineation. Those people are really where the power of the Democratic Party is. You take the unions and you throw them in the pot. You take the political machines and you throw them in the pot, and they're coming up with 48%. It's that 3% of people 
that are looking for some action to take place that will be meaningful and uplift the quality of life of folks. And the Democratic Party is just being stubborn as all get out, and they're not making the move. This Senate thing is important, and we'll see what comes of it, but I don't have a lot of faith in it, frankly. Mm. Anyway, I appreciate the show this evening. Can I ask you one thing, sir, before you go? Sure. Uh, you, you mentioned briefly as you uh, started your sociology course and yes. how it was uh, oh uh, annoying you. What, what exactly is happening there? Oh, everybody's a victim. Everybody's a victim. Black people can't do anything because they're black, and white people are devils because they hate black people, and Puerto Ricans hate black people and white people, and we all hate each other, and you've got to recognize that we all hate each other and, and be able to put, it, put all of these things in their proper place so that you can make the right decisions about what you're going to do with your life. And it was just devastating. And I'm looking at the text, and I'm listening to this outlandish lecture. The textbooks was, was off on facts. They, they talk about the Vietnam War, and they said it started under the Johnson administration. First man died in Vietnam in 1953, as I understand it. Just on and on. Mm -hmm. And just really, really disheartening. And I tried to tell these young people that I had this class with that you need to understand that you, you have a great opportunity as an American citizen to go out there and to strive for your freedom. And it's not going to be easy, and you're going to have to fight really hard sometimes. And uh, the goal is to have faith that the fight is a good fight. And uh, lend some consideration to your neighbor and go out there and do the right thing. But these guys are just, I just felt so bad for these young kids, 19 years old. I can't resist asking you, where, where are you going to school? I want to ask you the name of the teacher. Oh, I, uh, I'm going to technical school here in Chicago. I'm going mm -hmm. over to Dubai. Mm -hmm. I'm, a, uh, I'm studying about yeah. sending electrical signals right. well, down wires. Thank you very much for the call. See you now. Glad to have heard from you. 591-7200 as we go to the next. Hello, you're on the air. Good evening. Mm -hmm. I would like to ask uh, uh, your guest what he feels about the liberal wing of the media, which seems to... You touched a little bit on the university life uh, and how the liberal agenda has taken that over. Uh, would it be a fair statement uh, for me to make that the same thing has occurred in the media and that, in fact, uh, when you dare talk about an issue, for example, of pro-life, that you are considered uh, a far-right extremist? Let me try something on Ronald Reitish. I want to draw a little bit of a distinction. I suggest, as a thesis that in the universities there are lots of really radical people. The media are uh, loaded with uh, mushy liberals, uh, rather lacking in discrimination, and reflexively liberal, but not truly radicalized. Probably so, except, the, look, even Dan Rather writes for The Nation magazine. Mm -hmm. And here you have this big hullabaloo just last week, I think. I didn't see the show, but I read all the, the text where... Dan Rather was hawking his book on the O'Reilly Report, and uh, he got into a whole tizzy about Clinton and Clinton's morality, and Dan Rather said point blank that he uh, did not say things that he knew on the air because he didn't want to uh, uh, harm Clinton, and he felt this was just the right thing to do as a journalist. I mean, it was outrageous because Dan Rather, the, the media type, particularly the big anchorman, pretend to have no politics, to be mm -hmm. impartial, quote, objective, above the fray. Well, they're all left well, liberal. When they, they go, go into it, it, they expose themselves, yeah. as Rather did in this, uh, if you look up the transcript, it's all over the Internet, of uh, the recent interview with O'Reilly. It's amazing. 
Yeah, but I still say they're left liberal right. rather than uh, I agree doctrinaire anti-American. Right, but even look, we talked about the, an hour ago or so about Alger Hiss. Remember what happened when Alger Hiss died and how Peter Jennings presented it on the ABC Evening News? The, I don't have the transcript in I front of me, no, but but Peter Jennings said essentially Alger Hiss uh, was, was innocent and was accused falsely of being a Soviet agent, and this was his the way he presented it when Hiss died. He took Hiss's point of view as if this was the fact. Oh, and yeah. now, is this naivete? Is it just that uh, he's in that world and that's what he was told about Alger Hiss, so he believes it? That that was fairly amazing. That is truly amazing. I hadn't heard that. Excuse me, Milt. May I ask one more quick yes, one? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, Ron, I'd like to also ask you uh, what your views of Bill Buckley are. Uh, you know, I disagree with him on some things. I think he's a very courageous and dependent-minded thinker. I mean, National, I think National Review, which he, of course, started, is uh, a conservative journal of great eminence and great integrity, even when I disagree with some of the things. For example, uh, people think conservatives have one point of view. Uh, people would say, if you said to someone, where, who's, where do people stand on capital punishment? They say, well, the left is against it, the right is for it. Well, National Review had a huge lead cover story. It was a, a great deal of the issue. A conservative, the conservative case against capital punishment. Uh, there is no unanimity or a line. And you will get the thing I like about Buckley's, the publication Buckley started is that they will have real thing. Buckley, of course, is for... Uh, has the libertarian position on drugs. He's for legalization of drugs, while a lot of other conservatives like Bill Bennett aren't. Uh, so, you know, he calls it as he sees it, and this is a, a man of integrity, who is undoubtedly, I would disagree with things he said years ago, but he's a great, he, if you read Buckley, he's probably mellowed and changed uh, over the years. Terrific. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Glad to have heard from you. And quickly, on to the next. Hello, you're on the air. Hi. Um... People with blinders on, empty-headed people, and also, I guess you'd say totalitarian or uh, people, are. I find them on the left and the right, and I don't know how somebody would go about determining whether there are more of them on the left and more of them on the right. If you turn on the radio, I think nowadays talk radio is predominantly peopled um, with, with piling on um, by, by the right. And, uh, and, and also I would say a lot of cable... Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I think there are people who are very, very dictatorially minded on the left, but um, I don't know, you know, I don't know if it, you know, if calling somebody an ass or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, is, is, is the same type of a, um, same type of a germ as, as is on the other side. Well, sir, uh, uh, Ron, permit me a moment's response sure. to the, the comment is to you, but as somebody who does a radio talk show, I believe these things are called, <laughs> Uh, the fact is that you find an awful lot of uh, intemperance and extremity, uh, left and right, for radio, uh, very often when it comes to local talk shows and national ones, they tend to be more on the right, but they're very self-dramatizing. It's showbiz, and uh, I'm not particularly fond of that. I confess that I tend to be tilted rightwards these days. I think Sulam uh, Muakil was right in his reading of me. I've made a transition, not at all unlike the one that uh, you, Ron Radosh, have made. But one tries to be somewhat balanced and uh, not too uh, Now, having been on a lot of developments, if I can compliment you, I've been on, uh, since this book appeared, I've been in an endless round of talk shows, yeah. sometimes uh, two or three a day, with score. And believe me, I have been on, I won't name the, the hosts, 
some of them are so extremist on the right and so far out and so crazy that they are uh, imbecilic. But I fear you're a serious uh, this person who understands issues and I'm an odd thing. I'm a professor who who does a talk Uh, show. But the point is, there's something about you know, uh, uh, what's his name was right, uh, the Canadian uh, who theorized about television. He's right about media generally. Uh, Though this, though, television is the hot is the cool medium and radio is the hot one, whatever all of that really meant. The fact is... McLuhan. uh, McLuhan, exactly. Thank you, sir. The fact is that uh, the medium is the message in a way, and lots of people are drawn to trying to maximize their presentation in a way that will Mm. get them listeners, get them viewers. Uh, You can use radio and even television, I think, other ways, but that's a sort of a built-in defect. Well, I was just saying that... uh, there are, you know, there are extremists on all sides. I mean, I was just on the talk show where the host was trying to convince me that the American Civil Liberties Union was, real agenda was to create a communist state in America by violence. And this was so far out and so crazed that I, I, all I could do is try and deflect this, the attention away from it. Uh, you know, I, all wisdom certainly does not reside in the right. You know, somebody that says, like, like, Horowitz says he was led by the nose from a child uh, in the on the ways of the left, and you know, and it's like it seems more concentration on the on the on the person who is leading than actually the fact that they were let themselves be led by the nose. Well, you know, when you're young, look, I started out uh, uh, as I say in my book, and I, I've known David Horowitz since junior high school. And, uh, in fact, I met him when he came to my communist youth club and tried to recruit me to write. He was the editor, youth editor of the Daily Worker. And, in fact, the first article I ever wrote was in the Daily Worker. I didn't sign it because for, I wanted to kept my name off it, but uh, it was due to him. And I wrote, that was the first thing I ever had published. It was an article about communist China and the United Nations at a student conference. Uh, when you're that age and being led by your intellectual mentors, friends of your parents, who educate you and tell you there is a science, in that case, the science of Marxism-Leninism, which had all the answers, that's a very heady thing. What do you know? I mean, you're 14, 15, and here are these great educated people teaching you that this is the science that will save the world. Uh, You take it very seriously. So it's not strange why someone like as intelligent as David Horowitz uh, or myself uh, was easily led. There's a a human tendency to want to curtail human freedom, and I think our our forefathers tried to um, check that with the Constitution, but I I don't think either side is really immune from that. Sir, thank you. Mm -hmm. Glad to have heard from you. Let us work in one more quick call. Hello, you're on the air. Yes, thank you, and I shall try to hang up and uh, hear your response. It's a relatively brief question, but it's uh, a bit forward-looking, and that is uh, you gentlemen have both bemoaned uh, the left over left and some of the damage that it has wrought, and the both of you have, uh, if you will, made the crossing. Well, let, uh, let, let me make clear, I was never a member of the Communist Youth League or anything like that. I've just, right. But I was once on the uh, what is called the liberal side, and I think these days I'm on what is called the conservative I'm side. I'm sorry, forgive me. Not at uh, all. But anyway, uh, um, put it, to, to put it briefly, uh, what sort of mugging by reality might uh, lead some of the remaining uh, advocates of the, the left position to rethink some of their more dangerous ideas? And, well, uh, you know, take, take free trade. Mm. They're against globalization, which is inevitable. Some of the columnists in the newspapers have pointed out that the African countries are all opposed to the people protesting in the streets because they want 
protectionism that is going to interfere with jobs for African poor workers. I think if they go to some of these countries and they quickly learn that the people they're supposedly hoping they think they're speaking on behalf of the world's poor don't like what they're saying, that's going to open their eyes. I mean, one of the uh, the Times columnists, Thomas Friedman, who I don't said he he calls them the people on the left, a coalition to keep the world's poor poor. Uh, and I think that's really the case. And I think eventually a lot of these kids who are idealistic and well-meaning are going to go abroad and speak to some of the people they think they're speaking on behalf of, and their eyes are going to be open. They're going to say, oh, my God, you mean you don't agree with what I'm telling you you should want? That's going to open their eyes. Sir, thank you for the call. Uh, just a minute or so left. We haven't finished the personal story. Indeed, we, there's much of the personal story. I'll have in, to get the book for that. In the book, Commies, which we haven't drawn upon at all. Uh, you've... Uh, ended your long career as an academic. What are you doing these days? I'm writing, um, uh, writing articles. I have a regular column on frontpagemag.com, which is David Horowitz is the editor of. I have a big article on Bob Dylan in the New Republic next week. You knew him as, next a, Thursday. as a, you know, I have as a, a kid. long, long article on Dylan, yeah. uh, which you'll be able to read next week. And I have another book coming out on the Spanish Civil War and the Soviet Union. Uh, so I'm writing. I'm working full time. That's great. That's great. Um, you're still living in or near Washington. Right, suburbs of Washington, yeah. D.C. Do you have any hope that we've, we're turning a corner in this country? I think so. I'm optimistic. I think that uh, the left over left, as they call it, makes a lot of noise, but uh, much noise and little substance. And I don't think uh, uh, they're as important. I think they're important in the academy, and they have to be fought there. But I think that the country is large. I think things are going to get better. Just today, I think George Bush appointed Bruce Cole as uh, announced the appointment of as new head of the National Endowment for the Humanities, a great scholar, traditional art historian from Indiana, and that's going to change things around in the government's uh, uh, cultural institution and help turn the economy around. It needs it. I can testify that it needs it. Uh, it's been a great pleasure talking with Ron Radosh, Ronald Radosh tonight. His new book, Commies, A Journey Through the Old Left, the New Left, and the Leftover Left, is just published by Encounter Books. And uh, do by all means get your hand on it. It's a very compelling story. We haven't developed a personal side of it as much as uh, the book does. It was does. a pleasure being here. I, I'm delighted to have had you here again. A few quick words about programs to come. Tomorrow, uh, after the ball game, if time allows, we will have a live guest. But I'm especially... Uh, uh, interested in letting you know that next Monday night our guest will, for the full two hours, will be David McCullough, uh, that great American popular historian who did that fine book on Truman. He's got a new book on John Adams, President of the United States. That's Monday at 9. Until tomorrow after the game, a cordial good night to all.